Good morning, and welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. We're happy to have each of you here with us on this beautiful Sunday morning to join in worship. Please stand and join me in the call to worship shown on the screen. Shout with joy to God, all the earth. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard.
seated, take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. great joy to welcome you to this worship service today. We're glad to have those of you who may be uh, visiting uh, this weekend. I know there are some family reunions and Royal Family Kids Camp, which we'll be talking about in just a moment, Uh, but we're glad that you're here as a part of this uh, gathering of worship here at the Houghton Church. There are just a few things I want to highlight uh, in in the life of our church. Next Sunday, we gather for worship again at 10 o'clock. For those of you who are delegates to District Conference, I want to remind you that that event takes place this Saturday, 9 o'clock, at the Western Church of Orchard Park. And if uh, you need a ride or you need any other information, uh, just make sure you contact us this week as we're organizing that. There are also a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. Uh, we pray for those connected to us as well as circumstances around the world. We did want to mention that uh, Buddy Keith was taken to the hospital in Warsaw last night uh, with dehydration. Uh, He's doing much better, and they have him there for probably uh, the rest of this day. But I know that he would appreciate our prayers, as well as others who are in need. We are privileged, once again, to to be uh, a part of uh, Royal Family Kids Camp. RFKC is one of the ministries that we support and have supported from uh, its beginning as a part of uh, a camp here in western New York. And uh, we are always thrilled to, to be a part of this organization, and I am uh, happy to welcome John Van Wicklin, uh, who has been the camp director from uh, when this camp started. Uh, he's going to be sharing with us, and then we're going to have a time to pray together as well. John. Thank you, Wes. Uh, you have information about the camp in your uh, bulletin insert. I want to apologize those of you who may have donated or signed up for something uh, in the last three weeks. That was about sent to the church about three weeks ago, so it's not exactly up to date. So my apologies if you're not listed in there. Uh, in April, I received a phone call that began like this. Are you the guy that runs that camp for kids? I said, well, I'm the director of Royal Family Kids Camp. He said, oh, good. I was wondering if my granddaughter could go to your camp. At this point, I wondered if he knew anything about the kind of camp that we operate or if he was just looking for a camp in general. So I asked, um, how did you find out about Royal Family Kids Camp? He said, well, two girls who know my granddaughter thought it would be a great place for her to go. Then I asked, well, how did they learn about Royal Family Kids Camp? And he said, to my surprise, well, they went there. Uh, And he told me their names. And while he was talking, my files happened to be under my phone and Uh, I pulled the files, and sure enough, the two girls he mentioned were sisters who had gone to our royal family several years ago because now they're 18 and 19 years old. So then I asked him to tell me a little bit more about his granddaughter because, for all I knew, she could be just a well-loved child from a healthy, intact family who's just looking for a camp to go to this summer for a week of fun and positive memories. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So he started telling me about her. He said she's seven years old. Her father's in prison, her mother abandoned her, and it was just me and Grandma taking care of her. And then Grandma died. Uh, So now it's just me and her. Well, I knew right away at that point that we had to make room for her to come this year. So tomorrow morning, 
She'll walk through the community room downstairs, dragging her luggage to register for can. Uh, this little girl is a case of lost love and love denied. A dad in jail, a mom who no longer wants anything to do with her, and a deceased grandma who can love her no more. Our verse of the week for this year is Romans 8:38. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love. This little girl needs to know that God loves her and will never stop loving her. Her grandpa rightly sensed that she needs to have more love reach her than he can provide by himself. Next week, she will be surrounded with the love of her counselor, her buddy camper, um, her buddy counselor and their campers, her prayer partner, and all the staff of Royal Family Kids Camp. Every closing Friday at camp since 1995, we've planted a tree in honor of our campers. Our 1995 tree was a tiny oak that we picked up and placed in the hole that we dug for it. Today, it is one foot in diameter at the base and reaches over 30 feet high, and you couldn't displace it if you rammed it with a Buick. (laughs) Incidentally, the name of this little girl I was talking about before means oak tree. This year, we're planting a 10-foot-tall clump magnolia donated to us, and two of our veteran counselors, Betty and Mary, with 35 years of combined experience at RFKC, they were the ones that named it, and thinking of the needs of our campers and this year's Bible verse, they, named, they chose the name Everlasting Love. Uh, that's our hope for Little Oak Tree this week and 51 other campers uh, who are coming this year as well. While our group of 85 full and part-time volunteers are creating a wonderful week for 52 campers, many of you have committed to pray for a camper, staff member, or counselor for this entire week. Uh, I would like for all the prayer partners just for a minute to stand up, and then you can sit down. I'm not going to have you go anywhere, but would you please stand if you're praying, uh, if you're a prayer partner for this week, wherever you are? Okay, thank you. You may sit down. That's all the work we're going to require. The rest is all spiritual. Okay. Uh, But uh, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that Lynn Harder, who's wearing a a very unique uh, Hawaiian royal family shirt today that I gave her, Uh, She has been uh, coordinating prayer partners for 10 years now. Uh, That means she's lined up over 1,000 prayer partners since 2003. And I think because of all that prayer over the last 10 years and beyond that for the whole 18 years, uh, camp runs better than it has any right to. Colleen Myers, our camp videographer, made a three-minute video of last year's camp. And last year we showed a similar brief video of the 2010 camp. So we want to play this 2011 video for you now uh, so you can get a glimpse of what, it, what you're sponsoring or what you're praying for. And if you would like to volunteer in 2013, just find any one of us and we'll get you an application. See, seek us out in the fall. We'd like you to be a part of the team. Thank you. And I feel all the faint morning light Filled with hope cause you're here in my life And we've gone from the edge of our souls Made it back to a place we call home You see me through I was alone in the dark And the fear was my truth Yeah, all the things that you
I'm so human and flawed I'll break down even though I'm still strong In time, we'll make fools of us all Build us up and then last when we fall John mentioned prayer is so vital to the um, purposes of this camp being accomplished. And we want to take a few moments to pray for the people who are going to be working at the camp as well as the campers. So if you are a part of the Royal Family uh, staff, uh, if you're working at the camp, I'm going to ask you to come and stand here around the front as much as possible. We may have to circle around the sides and up the aisles a little bit. But come on down. We want to be able to take a moment to pray for you. And ask God's grace upon this week. Let's pray together. Father, we're reminded every day that we live in a world that is filled with heartache and pain. We live in a world in which sometimes the difficulties and the pain that comes to us is honestly of our own doing. 
But so much of what happens to the children who will be involved in this camp this week is out of their control. They have encountered some of the most difficult pain in life. And they feel helpless and hopeless. And our prayer is that this week, because of these people who are standing here in front of us, and because of your Holy Spirit at work, that their lives as campers will be transformed. We pray, Father, that they will indeed understand in a way they have never understood before that nothing can separate them from your love. And we pray that this whole week, every conversation, every activity, every lesson, everything that goes on would be a means that you use to convince every one of these children of the depth of your love for them. And that absolutely nothing can ever change your love for them. Father, I pray that you would put into the heart of every person standing here, every staff member, that love that you have for them that would seep out of them to these children who desperately need to know your love in their lives. We pray, Father, that that you would defeat anything that the evil one would want to do. We pray that you would protect children and campers from injury or harm. We pray that, that you will be so real and present in everything that goes on, all of those planned activities and every moment that is unplanned. And that when this week is finished, there will truly be transformation in lives, in the campers and in the staff. Transformation that will last far beyond this week but throughout the rest of their lives. Father, we pray your protective hand upon these children and the staff. And we ask for your grace to be seen in a powerful way. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may return to your seats. Thank you to all of you who are prayer partners specifically for a person who's working at the camp. But thank you also for those of you, as the Lord puts into your mind, the camp and pray. Because we believe God's going to use this to do amazing things. I want to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. As we pray about really things that are connected to the camp. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, even though Jesus welcomes children, we are tempted to push them away. Even though Jesus values children, we are tempted to treat them as an inconvenience. Even though Jesus commands us to take on the characteristics of children...
we are tempted to see them as peripheral to what's most important in your kingdom. When children are abused and neglected, your heart is broken. We tend to close our eyes so that our hearts won't be disturbed. Father, forgive us. Help us to pray for your mind and heart toward children around the world and around us here. And use us to change the lives of needy children through the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As the ushers come to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. And I invite you to stand for the doxology. Father, we have enjoyed many gifts since the last time we were here. Help us to remember those gifts and to make this offering to you in joy and gratitude for all that you do for us. For you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we desire to be children learning to imitate your generosity. Through Christ we pray. Amen.
have the opportunity to join our hearts together in prayer. And as we pray, if you would like to use the altar as real as a place where you come and unburden your heart to God and lift your prayers to God, I invite you to join me as we're seated. Lord our God, you have done so much for us and you are so great that it is really impossible for us to to stop singing your praises. We've come today to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you as the almighty God, the king of all the earth and the savior of your people. We bow before you today and we ask for your grace in hearing all of our prayers. Father, we recognize that we have a tendency to overlook so many of your blessings. And we have a tendency to withhold forgiveness even as we demand forgiveness from others. Lord, we're so often impatient. We think about ourselves instead of thinking about the needs of others. Father, for these sins, for all of the sins, all of our sins, in your mercy we pray that you will forgive us and that you will wash us fresh and clean and restore purity to our hearts and our spirits. Father, we pray for others who are living in great need today. We pray, Father, for those who are dealing in this country with the oppressive heat. We pray, Father, for people who are dealing with pain and illness. People who are grieving. People who are captured in hopelessness. Father, we pray for everyone who's, who's feeling the sting of rejection living with hurt and pain or torn upside down by destructive habits, by shame and guilt, by the inability to accept your love and goodness. And in this moment of silence, we pray for ourselves, we pray for others and ask that you would heal and reassure and speak deeply and passionately to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that as people who have come together in this place on this day, that you would unite our hearts with our brothers and sisters in this country and around the world. Father, we pray that you will help us as your church to live with courage and truth 
and love in a frightening world. Empower us to love one another with your unconditional love and to bear witness to your transforming grace through the power of your Spirit. Help us to live openly and expectantly in the abiding hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the crucified one, the risen one, the ascended one, and the one who is returning, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What do you say to someone who feels like they've lost it all? Over the edge with no one there to break their fall. And what do you say to someone who feels so unloved? Giving themselves away a little bit every day just to be good enough. And what do you say to a hopeless soul Who can't remember their way home And everything is out of their control There is no valley There is no darkness There is no sorrow Greater than the grace of Jesus There is no So before you think that you're too lost to say, remember there is nothing greater than grace. What do you say to someone whose life is on the line and they're unsure what happens after their last breath in time? What do you say to someone who has built a wall you can't break through And it's so hard for them to hear the truth There is no valley, there is no darkness There is no sorrow greater than the grace of Jesus There is no Don't let go Don't give up
Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. This is the word of the Lord.
may be seated. Now, how am I going to preach after that? You may not know this coming from Houghton, but I, I was reading a hymnologist, and apparently hymnologists think that that hymn is unsingable. They don't like the tune for that hymn, and I always think those hymnologists just need to visit Houghton. They would hear that hymn sung really, really well. Well, it's nice to be uh, back preaching this morning. I, um, I really have enjoyed my first month or so here serving in ministry, and um, there's a steep learning curve always when you start something new, so I'm learning a lot. Um, but really have appreciated all the kind feedback I've gotten from folks and uh, the chances to get to, to meet and know most of you better. Uh, when I was last here in the pulpit with you, I gave what I think was a pretty good sermon. So if you weren't here, you missed it. It was really great. <laughs> well, in fairness, it was a pretty high-minded sermon. And I talked a lot about the danger of putting other people in boxes. And we used the text, we talked about the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and then dried them with her hair. And a Pharisee saw this and he said, if this man, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know, quote, what kind of woman this is. What kind of woman this is. And uh, we talked about how easy it is to deal with people by trying to figure out what kind of people they are putting a label on them and putting them in boxes and often putting them in boxes that are labeled untrustworthy or I can ignore this guy safely or something like that. That's a long label for a box, but you get the idea. The idea being that what we like to do with people because we know so many people, especially in a very connected world, is part of the way we deal with that is to say, you know what, I can't know everybody individually. I can't treat everybody as a person. So I'm going to weed some people out who I can just ignore. And so we talked about how difficult it is, but how our calling is to treat people like Jesus, who didn't see uh, that woman as that kind of woman, but saw an actual person with whom no doubt he had some grave disagreements about how she was living her life, but yet he was able to receive a gift from her and renew a relationship with her because he was unwilling to see her simply as a category, but to see her as a complex uh, often difficult, contradictory, but real, genuine, flesh-and-blood human being, like the rest of us. Well, as I say, it was a pretty high-minded sermon, and like I say, I think it was a pretty good one, but I did leave one crucial question unanswered. How? How do we do that? Right? It's pretty easy uh, to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them that all we need to do is stop putting people in boxes, But simply standing up in front of people and telling them not to do something is no guarantee that they will do it. For one thing, uh, and there's several reasons for that. For one thing, the sermon that I preached before was about 25 minutes long, and it was about a month ago. And no doubt since then, you went out immediately after that 25-minute sermon, and you went back into a world where the normal way we deal with people is to put them in boxes. So for 25 minutes, you heard, don't do that. And for the last five weeks, you've been hearing, do that. It's the only way to survive. A sermon can only do so much because a preacher can't preach all week long, try as some of us might. And truthfully, even beyond that, we all know that there are things that we should be doing, and someone can tell us it would be good for us to do, uh, but we find it difficult or impossible to do them, even though we know it's good for us, right? We know that pie will make us fat, but who among us can resist the last piece of cherry pie, especially when no one is looking, right? 
When I preached that sermon, I think I appealed to something in us that said, hey, there's just something in me that, that resonates with that. I know it's true. I know I can't keep putting people in boxes, but, but I think maybe I may have also caused us to despair a little bit because it seems like an enormous task. How do we get there? How do we resist the powerful urge to treat other people this way? How do we resist that temptation, that temptation which is reinforced by our own silliness and sinfulness, and also just by our sense of this is the way the world works? How do we become people who treat other people like Jesus treated them? How do we become people who treat others as human rather than simply data to be stuffed in boxes and filed away? How do we love like Jesus loved? Well, there are lots of ways to do this, and there are lots of ways that we've tried. I was uh, just thinking, you know, what have Christians tried in the last few years? And I thought about the WWJD bracelets. Do you remember the WWJD bracelets? It's hard for me to understand this, but the college students who are coming this year have never known a world without them. Um, but uh, I think they were probably mid-90s, early 90s that they started. And, and the idea behind this bracelet, of course, is that you'll look down at the bracelet in any given situation and you'll say, what would Jesus do? And then presumably you'll go and do that rather than the other thing that you were thinking you might do. Now, I want to be careful when talking about this because I dislike when Christians are very harshly critical of other Christians. And I'm sure the WWJD bracelets have done a lot of good and heaven knows it would be good for me sometimes to think about what Jesus would do. Uh, But they're not foolproof, are they? Truth be told, I haven't noticed a measurable difference in people who wear them and people who don't, how they act. There's a couple weaknesses with them, I think, and one of them, of course, is that it's not always immediately clear what Jesus would do. I thought about what if, uh, what if a group of us had just gone up to the inner city and we passed a, a man who was sitting on the sidewalk and he said, you know, please donate. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten for five days. And uh, so all four of us looked down at our bracelets, let's suppose, and we all came to different conclusions about what Jesus would do. Right? You might say to me, hey, I'm looking at my bracelet. Jesus would definitely just give this guy money. Right? I, I know that we don't know what he's going to do with it, but that's what we're called to do. We're called on to give. We're not called on to manage other people's money. And another of us might look at our bracelet and say, you know what? This guy is not going to use this money to buy food. This guy's going to use money to buy drugs. So I'll go buy him a sandwich, but I'm not going to just give him money. And someone else might say, what would Jesus do? This guy doesn't really need food at all. What he really needs is someone to talk to him. And so another of us might just plop down next to the guy and, and talk to him and, and uh, see about what's going on in his life and try to connect with him on an interpersonal level. Another of us might look at our bracelets and say, you know, as important as that need is, it's just not what I'm called to address. And so I'm going to hope, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to hope God sends a Christian who really is gifted to deal with the situation. But that's not me. Now, all four of those things are legitimate things that Jesus might do in a situation, uh, but it's not obvious what Jesus would do. These are all legitimate responses, but and sometimes the bracelet functions as this kind of reminder to do what we deep down know is right. But we forget sometimes that our deep down sense of what's right and what's wrong doesn't always come directly from God. Not to get all sociological, right? But our ideas about what's right and wrong, our gut-level intuitions, come from all over the place. They come from the media we expose ourselves to. They come from our parents. They come from the churches we belong to. They come from our friends. They come from our family. 
This may sound overly pessimistic, but I don't know if I want to live in a world where people are running around just doing what they know is right. Doesn't sound all that different than the rest of the world, really. So that's one of the problems with that approach. And of course, the other is the bracelet itself. I got to thinking the other day, uh, I have uh, never had surgery, but I would be terrified if I was going in for surgery and the last thing I saw as I was, the anesthesia was being administered and I was fading out is if the surgeon looked down at a bracelet and said, what would a surgeon do? What would a surgeon do? If I were a surgeon, what would I do right now? Or if I went to a a concert and it was an orchestra concert and it was going to be great, but every time there was a rest, the trumpet players were looking down and saying, what would a trumpet player do? I, I thought you were a surgeon, right? I thought you were a trumpet player and you know what these people do. Right? And uh, in the same sort of way, I think Christians are called on to extend the ministry of Jesus into the world, to, to be Jesus. And so we don't need Christians who are always sort of wringing our hands and thinking, okay, now, this situation, what would Jesus do? Okay, well, I got through that. Now what would Jesus do? The world needs Christians who are capable of going out and skillfully, effortlessly, in a sense, being Jesus. Simply being um, the people that Jesus has called us to be. Unafraid, bold, knowing we're going to make some mistakes along the way, but confident enough that God's good and is going to overcome them so that we don't have to keep fearing failure. How do we become this sort of person? How do we become the people who are Jesus as naturally as we breathe? That's the question I want to deal with when I'm preaching this summer. I'm, I'm preaching, this is the first of four times I'll be preaching in the next few weeks. And I want to talk about four different strategies that we can use to become more like Jesus, to have a more Christ-like posture towards the rest of the world. And before I get too far into that, I do want to tell you, we are extremely blessed to approach this problem from a Wesleyan perspective. I know that we come from all kind of different backgrounds here, and this may not be a typical Wesleyan church in that people come from all different sorts of backgrounds to be here. But Wesleyan theological approach to this is just great. The idea that God desires and makes us capable of being holy and gives us his spirit as a reliable helper in that charge toward holiness. That we can expect, in a sense, to be like Jesus and not despair. And that God's spirit is always present to point us back to Jesus. It's a real blessing to approach it as a Wesleyan. Well, one of these strategies, like I say, is is pretty clearly on display in this morning's passage that Andrew so ably read. The passage is about forgiveness. And forgiveness is at the heart of what we've been talking about. When someone sins against you, when someone harms you, or when someone is just plain wrong, you have the option of putting them in a box and filing them away and putting them out of your life. You can do this by staying angry at them forever. You can do this by being icy and holding a grudge. You can split the difference and be passive-aggressive and be nice on the outside but still burning with resentment on the inside. But forgiveness is taking that person out of the box and allowing them to be fully human again, a real person again. When someone wrongs us, it's tempting to make them into a monster. And forgiveness says, you know what? You're not a monster And I'm going to treat you as a person again. I'm going to be open to you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you. In this passage, we have a a classic example of a person who doesn't forgive. There's a man who's owed an impossible sum of money, millions upon millions of dollars. And he told his creditor, who was the king, no less, says, give me time and I will pay you back 
everything. That, of course, is ridiculous. There's no way the man could have paid everything back. No normal working person could ever pay that sum of money back. The fact that he was even in this situation suggests that he had been extremely wasteful with something the king had given him already. And he also apparently thinks so highly of himself as to say, you know that gift the king gave me, that loan the king gave me, that wasn't such a big deal. I could get that. I could do that on my own if I had enough time. So he goes to him and he says, give me time. I'll pay you back. The king says, though, don't bother. Don't bother. I forgive you. Don't bother trying to pay it back. I forgive you the debt. Now, we would, of course, expect that the man would be thrilled at the good news. We would expect, I decided just to get a sense of the thrill for the good news. I was going to go back this, uh, this week and watch the end of It's a Wonderful Life again. And you see Jimmy Stewart running around. He's a Merry Christmas, Bedford Fall. You know, that whole thing he does, you know. And that's the kind of thing we would expect, right? We would expect him to just be so thrilled at the fact that now he's off the hook. It also made me cooler, incidentally. It was a good way to cool off this week, just to watch It's a Wonderful Life. But anyway, instead, though, we don't, we don't actually see him do that. Instead, we see him, uh, he sees another man who owes him a few hundred bucks, a pittance, uh, just this tiny sum of money. And he grabs him and he chokes him. And he says, pay me back what you owe me. And the debtor says, give me time, give me time, be patient, I'll pay you back. Just what he said to the king. But he refuses. And he throws the guy into jail. <clears throat> Now, the the point of the parable, of course, is to say that your ability to forgive others, which is, of course, to let them out of boxes, the ability to treat another person as fully human is directly tied to your ability to be grateful for what you've received. If you're not grateful for what you've received, you're not likely to be satisfied with what you have. And instead of being able to open yourself up to other people, You're going to have to close yourself off to them. Make them obstacles or allies to you getting what you want. You know, when we think about this parable and the the man's debt, we often think about Jesus' death on the cross as his debt. We we think about the the man's immense debt that he owed the king, and we think, well, that's, that's the debt that this is referring to. But I think we ought to think more broadly, not least because Jesus hasn't died yet at the time of this parable, Um, but, but also because everything in our life is a gift, Right? Everything that we have, not just our justification, not just the fact we're right with God, but the strength in our bodies, the meals on the table, the, the hidden beauty that's visible to anybody who wants to take time to look at it. Right? The paycheck that comes, the visit from a friend, the time for quiet reflection, the hustle and bustle of our children. All of that is a gift. We have to recognize it as a gift. We can't earn it. We we can't repay it. That's what was so drastically wrong with the man in the parable. He squandered it, and somehow he thought he could get it all back on his own. He took for granted the fact that the king forgave his debt, and he acted like that gift was not a big deal. It was something he could do for himself if he had enough time. The parable states a truth negatively, but it has a positive kind of converse If we learn to be grateful, we can learn to love other people like Jesus loved them. These are two things we don't often connect, but I think this parable connects them. 
If we can learn to be grateful, we can learn to love other people as Jesus loves them. If we can learn to be grateful, we can learn to forgive others. And if we can learn to forgive others, we can let them out of boxes and love them like Jesus loves them. If we can learn to see all of life as a gift, freely given to us, we don't have to use people or avoid people, but we can give ourselves to people and open ourselves up to relationship with them. But that's only possible if we learn to be grateful. Now, at, the, at this time, whenever I hear a sermon that verges on saying, now you be grateful, kids, I think about my mother. Uh, sorry, mom. My mom's going to listen to this. This is not good. But uh, it makes me think about my mother and uh, the fact that I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, and New Jersey, believe it or not, is well known for produce, at least within New Jersey. It is the garden state after all. Are there other Jersey people here? Just, I feel at home to see a couple of Jersey people around. So, and the part of New Jersey I'm from puts the garden in garden state. And so it's a big deal when the Jersey tomatoes come on and the Jersey peaches come on. But another crop that's very prominent in New Jersey is lima beans. Now you probably don't all know this, but Jersey lima beans are a big deal. Jersey lima beans are disgusting. I mean, it's lima beans in general. It has nothing to do with Jersey lima. I'm sorry. If there are those of you that like lima beans, that's fine. But I'm not a lima bean person. And so every year, my dad would raise these lima beans. And every year, he'd bring them in from the garden. And, you know, we'd get them all together and prepare them and whatever. And my mom would serve them. And she'd say, you don't know how lucky you are. She'd say, <laughs> she'd say in my, in growing up in Houghton, we had to eat these canned lima beans. They were terrible. But these, your father's fresh, wonderful lima beans straight from the garden. And they're so good. And I thought, I, just, I can't, ugh. So I don't want to be that person up here because my mom would say, you need to be grateful for something I was just incapable of being grateful for. In that moment, I would think to myself, I wish I could make myself like lima beans and thus be grateful, but I just couldn't, right? I couldn't make that sort of shift in my head. I'd try as I might, I wanted to. So I'm not trying to say, now you be grateful because there's no way to shift the, the, the mindset quite so easily, is there? I can't tell you to go out in the world and say, you know, the world that you looked at and you said, oh, it's pretty terrible coming in. I, you know, this, is the, this bill is overdue and whatever. I have to have this done on my house and I can't pay for it and my uh, relationships are fractured. I can't say, now you be grateful. It's tempting. <laughs> but I can't. Right? There has to be a different way to learn gratitude. In the small group I led, we studied um, C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory a couple years ago. And uh, there was a sermon we read where he was talking about our intuitions, the things we feel in our hearts, and our ideas, those things we know in our heads. And Lewis says you can change the ideas in your heads pretty easily. Someone might uh, give you a new idea that you find compelling. But, but our intuitions, those things we feel in our gut, we can only change by what he lovely, uh, cheerily calls mortification. We only learn this stuff in our heart. We only learn that intuition. We only learn, frankly, that sense of gut level right and wrong by changing our habits, our patterns. Um, my uh, love for Philadelphia sports is undimmed. I grew up in Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia. Even the Phillies, even though they're terrible this year, I love all those teams. But the only reason I can still love them at a distance is that I can still watch them thanks to the internet. Right? I can still be back there and I can still have a habit of watching them. But if I were away, I wouldn't feel as passionately about it. Habits change our hearts. Habits change our intuition. So how do we learn gratitude? Do we offer a gratitude 101 course at the college? No, we learn gratitude by saying thank you. 
We say thank you. At the end of the day, we, we get a journal out and we write three or five or ten things which we are thankful for or which we should be thankful for. And we say thank you for them. That's not to say you're bursting with thanks every night. It's that those first few days, it may be horrible to find ten things. We say thank you to learn gratitude. We say thank you when we come to church on a Sunday, even though we'd rather play golf or be in bed. And I assure you that even pastors have Sundays when we'd rather play golf or be in bed. But we learn to say thank you by coming to the church to say, I get something from you. I understand myself only through you. And so today I give myself to you, body of Christ. We say thank you when we give ourselves completely once we're here. We, I was thinking today how we sing all these different songs and it's so hard. I can't imagine one person who actually likes them all, right? But we say thank you when we sing old hymns that remind us that the only reason we're here today is someone handed something to us. We received it. <laughs> Community's not created, mostly it's received, right? And we say thank you when we sing new songs that remind us that the only reason this community means anything is it goes on forever. Is it always creates something new. When we sing together, we, we acknowledge that we belong to each other, that because your music is my music, your joys are my joys, your burdens are my burdens, your God is my God. And there are other ways to train our hearts. We, we learn gratitude when we bite our tongues when we have an opportunity to justify ourselves. I do this all the time. Well, I mean, I do the wrong thing all the time. I, uh, when we first moved to Houghton, most of you know that we moved and, and I had been a pastor and Jill got a job as a professor. And for those first few months, I didn't know what I was going to do here. We just sort of went on faith that something was going to happen. And I didn't know what that was. And it was scary. It was really scary. And uh, I remember that whenever topic came up in discussion, if there was, an, and mind you, I'm a good Christian, so I didn't try to do this, but there were just times when it seemed like a good idea for me to mention that I had a PhD too, right? You understand, there are times to mention that. And I just had a time, I felt like I had, had to mention that right then. Why? Because deep down in my heart, I felt like I, I needed to say that for the other person to take me seriously as a person, Right? I had to say that because Jill had the job. Jill was in the public, and I was all of a sudden at home with the diapers. And, and, and I, needed, I needed people to know that there was more to me than just a diaper changer. <laughs> what I'm saying is, in reality, I would have said thank you if I had bit my tongue. And I'm learning to bite my tongue. But I, I would have said thank you to bite my tongue and say, God, thank you for the life I have. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what it means. But, but I don't have to justify myself right now because you've justified me. Thank you. And I could say that when I mean it, and I could say that when I don't mean it, and learn gratitude by saying it. There are lots of ways to learn gratitude. We say thank you to God. We say thank you to others. Mostly, I learn gratitude slowly, (laughs) clumsily, but eventually, just by saying thank you again and again and again to God, to anyone who will listen. I say thank you when someone says something to build me up, gives me a gift, or just wishes me well. I say thank you when I feel grateful for anything and when I don't feel grateful for anything, but I should. I say thank you again and again, and eventually I realize that the act of speaking my thanks is making me grateful somehow. It's making me more cognizant of the good things I have and how I didn't earn any of them. And as I say it again and again, something happens. Something strange, something glorious, something miraculous, if you think that way. I learn to read you more sympathetically. I learn to realize that you are fighting a great battle too. 
And I learn to be grateful for the ways you have showed something of God for me, even in the midst of your battle. I begin to realize how many gifts are out there, and I, can't, and I realize they're all for me, and I can't gather them in no matter how hard I try, so I may as well push some of them out. My precious illusion that I'm a self-made man disappears. Goodness, how could it be a self-made man? I came back to this community where my grandparents laid a cornerstone for me to stand on. It's like not just standing on third base and thinking I hit a triple. It's like standing between third and home, right? That illusion that I'm a self-made man is so strong, though, and when I'm grateful, just disappears. I realize that I'm heir to so much goodness and I even realize that so much of that goodness comes from my connection with you and it's in that moment that I can forgive your debt to me. The very act of saying thank you is making me willing to release you and let you be a person again because I don't need to use you to get what I need because when I say thank you, I realize I already have what I need. When millions are given to me every day, what is the few hundred bucks you owe me? Really, in the end, do I want to hold on to that thoughtless and insensitive thing you said if it means not enjoying what God has given to me? Honestly, now, do I want to remember that time you failed to live up to expectations enough that I'm willing to not appreciate what God has given? The creation, the cross, the empty tomb. Am I willing to throw that aside to hang on to that? Do I treasure my feeling of being wronged that much? Do I want to enjoy my feeling of moral superiority so much that I'm not willing to enjoy the gifts God gives me? In light of all that, in light of all God's given, do I want to freeze you out of my life because you're just plain wrong about Obamacare or hydrofracking? Even if you really are wrong about Obamacare and hydrofracking, and half of you are, right? <laughs> And especially when it's only the fact that you and I have a relationship with each other that you care the faintest bit what I think about Obamacare or hydrofracking. I'm not saying that what you think about those things or or one of the other thousand issues that divide us is not important. They're all important. And God's going to hold us accountable for how we think and act about those things. But when we're grateful for all that we've received, we remember that we deal with each other not as data to be filed away, And not as enemies, but as friends, or if you want to really up the ante, as brothers, as sisters, responsible for each other. And strange as it sounds, if we want to renew that relationship, it starts out there with simply being thankful, simply saying thank you. Let's pray. God, today we say thank you together. We say thank you for the good things that you've given to us. We say thank you for the things which we know in our heart of hearts are good, but we're frustrated with right now, or we can't see, or we feel like we don't have time to acknowledge. We say thank you. And God, we pray that in that act of thanksgiving, that you will be faithful, that you will change our hearts, that as we say thank you, as we learn to first recognize what we should be thankful for, that you will change our hearts and make us truly grateful. That you will shape us into the kind of people who can truly be open to each other, truly allow each other into our lives for the sake of our, our own sanity and health, but also for the sake of your witness in this world through this body of believers whom we love and cherish so much. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
Please stand as we sing. My soul arise, shake off the guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne. My surety stands before the throne. My surety stands. My name is written on His hand. God himself, God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in peace.